Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I have here for a second time Dr. Diana Fleischmann. She is an evolutionary psychologist from the University of Portsmouth, at least, I guess, for the time <laughs> Let's see. And uh, I mean, the first time we talked a little bit about human mating, and today we're going to talk about a very controversial topic, I guess, sex robots, and uh, I guess also a lot, a bit about other pieces of emergent technology that are out there and that might have some sort of impact in our human relationships and yes. the future of human relationships and also maybe a bit about how uh, bullies at school in the future might have a harder time uh, discerning who are the male virgins there to properly socialize them. So but I guess that we will leave that last part out. But uh, I mean, it was just for the joke, I guess. Uh, okay, so Dr. Fleischman, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. Hey, no problem. As long as we don't have to do the interview in Portuguese, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't expect that. No, no problem. Okay, so, I mean, uh, we, we are going to tackle sex robots from an evolutionary on the, or an evolutionary psychological perspective, right? And I guess it's interesting because uh, when we think about evolutionary psychology, and I've, I've, I've already had several evolutionary psychologists on the show, uh, we tend to think about things that happened back in our past and that still have some sort of influence today because of the way it structured our brains, let's say, uh, we don't usually think about what might happen in the future, right? So I, I guess it's interesting because, uh, I mean, we are talking about sex robots that are sort of an emergent technology. They are around the corner, basically. So I guess that we're going to be exposed to them with the same brains that we have at the moment, I, I don't think that we will have to wait tens or hundreds of thousands of years for them to yeah. come about and then for us to have evolved a little bit more, let's say. So, um, I mean, what would you say uh, are perhaps some of the most important aspects of uh, human mating from an evolutionary perspective that we should take into account to try to think uh, how sex robots might affect uh, as both at an individual and the social level? Uh, well, first off, I'm going to say a little bit about, uh, so Robin Hansen, who wrote The Age of M, I don't know if you've had Robin Hansen on, but yeah. he basically, yeah, you have. So um, so he said that it's much more, there's a lot of hypothetical history novels. What are they, what are they called? That history novels where it's um, a history novel where it's an alternative history novel. That's what it's called. So, you know, let's say the, the, not the Nazis had won or Stalin had won or whatever. How would we, uh, you know, look at history? How would the future be? And he says that there's a lot less speculative history. I mean, speculative sci-fi than there is um, speculative history. And he says, given that the future is in the future and it matters more than the past, we should actually have many, many people devoting a lot of their energy to thinking about how new technologies might actually be not necessarily a universal asset like evolution is, but the kind of thing that would actually corrode every level of society and change things fundamentally. And so with sex robots, I had seen a lot about them. And right now they are in a very primitive form. So if anybody was uh, here was like raised in the 80s or even the 70s, there was this doll that was called a Teddy Ruxpin doll, which is like a teddy bear that has like moving mouth parts. And you would put a cassette in it, it would say things to you. And um, Elizabeth Nolan Brown at Reason has said that right now the sex bots are the akin of like a Teddy Ruxpin doll, right? They can like say some words to you, they're, you can hold them and stuff, but they don't really do much else. They're more like sex Teddy Ruxpins than they are sex robots. And so I think that, uh, you know, the technology is going to develop. And I do think that when it comes to sex, technologies do develop more quickly. So when it comes to virtual reality, for example, or deep fakes or any number of other things, you can expect that such technologies will be used for sexual purposes 
in a more experimental way than they might be used for other purposes, just because that's a very popular means of, of media or way of uh, a kind of media that people like to take in. So when it comes to evolutionary psychology, I think that just sex robots, the important thing to think about is that men's minimum standards of attractiveness and other standards are much lower than they are for women. Even if you look at data from Alfred Kinsey back in the 1950s, he showed much higher rates of men having sex with animals, having sex with children, having sex with non-typical you know, members of the same sex and the opposite sex. There's just a lot more of that kind of stuff um, going on. And you even see this in non-human animals too. I heard some terrible thing about, was it, about male otters having sex with baby seals because they're, I mean, the, if you think about the error management principle, it's just a lot worse of an error to make to not recognize a fertile member of the opposite sex of your species than to, you know, so that's a worse mistake to miss an opportunity. And so you see the same thing with, with human males. And that's why it's going to be human males that are going to be much more excited or men that are much more excited about sex robots uh, than women that are excited about, about sex robots. And also because, as I make the case in my piece, which you'll, you'll link down below, it's called Uncanny Vulvas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was basically saying that, you know, the costs of courtship are very high and men have always wanted to circumvent these costs of courtship in a variety of different ways. So one way of circumventing the costs of courtship is sexual assault. Another one is to hire a prostitute. Another one is to engage in marriage where you can have sex with your wife whenever you want. There's a lot of ways to circumvent the costs of, of courtship, which are expensive by, by design. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, you were talking and I was thinking that really we men are really simple creatures when it comes to sex. I mean, you go into a public men's bathroom and you as a man, of course, you get there and you see two circles and one inverted triangle on the on the wall or on the door and you get mesmerized by it so that's the <laughs> level that we're talking about here so uh, <laughs> I, I mean but but it's interesting because sex robots seem to be much more tailored toward men for obvious reasons but would it make sense for them to at least be tailored toward a specific cohort of women? Uh, I, I mean, because I guess that when we think about women, we think about uh, them uh, liking, uh, I mean, for example, when we look into the literature on socio-sexuality, it seems like men are much more willing to have sex with women that they are not really that emotionally attached to, right, at least uh, in most circumstances, let's say, or, or on average. Um, and, and I mean, it, it, when you think about women, it, it, we would think that at least that piece of artificial intelligence would have to be much more, <laughs> let's say, romantic or something like that. Sophisticated, to at least. Yeah, 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 sophisticated, and not just look good like, physically speaking, right? So, yeah. I mean, it would be a bit more complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I when I wrote that piece, people were saying that I was sexist in both directions. You know, <laughs> saying that saying that you know men are really simple creatures, but also saying that you know women have inflated these costs of courtship and they made it incredibly difficult in order to get uh, a mating. Uh, yeah, I mean, playing dumb is, uh, is a strategy that I've heard women say that they use in order to pick up men. Playing dumb is not a strategy that men use to pick up women. Yeah. And I think that, yes, it would have to be a much more sophisticated design. So in the Uncanny Valley, which is the idea of th- that there's this, this space in which an animation or a doll or a robot looks creepy because it's approximating what a human looks like but it's not quite close enough so if something is incredibly stylized it can be quite beautiful and interesting but if something looks close to human but not exactly human it is is creepy right and my prediction basically was that this is a little bit like disgust you know the uh, perception of the uncanny valley perception that things are creepy and men are just less disgust sensitive uh, than women. And so if there were sex dolls made for women, that they would have to be, yes, much more sophisticated, much more kind of uh, psychologically 
potentially interesting. And of course, there are women who just want to have sex. But and there's obviously a huge market for sex toys, women buy dildos and things like that. But I don't think that they would necessarily want a whole body attached to it. Uh, I do. I did see a, a mini documentary about a woman who bought a sex doll basically to make money because she bought a male sex doll because she's a cam girl and she didn't want to actually have sex with like real men on camera. So instead she has sex with this uh, male sex doll and she positions him and things like that in such a way that it looks like there's somebody really there, but she doesn't have to deal with a real man. I think that that really encompasses the issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That must have been very interesting. So, uh, I mean, you're, you were referring to the uncanny valley that is basically the fact that there are a lot of men out there that they would they wouldn't really need a very sophisticated sex robot for them to feel somewhat attracted by it and to be able yeah. to make sex with it or to have sex with it. So, uh, and I guess, do you also borrow a little bit from that literature by Simon Baron Cohen about the empathizers versus the systematizers, I guess that's the word, yeah. where basically distinguishes between men and women and he studies how women are, tend to be more empathizers and men more systematizers and then there there's a lot of men and particularly things like for example autism occur much more frequently in men so i mean it's also those sorts of things that we are talking about here right yeah so in, in uh, what i have said is that essentially men are more likely to be uh, systematizers than empathizers and it could be a process of selection. It could be some kind of environmental pollutant. We don't know why there are these uh, higher rates of autism, but we do know that the rates of autism are greater or Asperger's are greater among men whose parents are scientists, specifically engineers, mathematicians, and physicists. And those kinds of men who have systematizing genes, you know, their fathers and, and mothers have systematizing um, genetics, they're much more likely to uh, be on the spectrum, as they call it. And the thing that I've said is that men on the spectrum are kind of enjoying, I mean, they're enjoying actually a lot of status. They have a huge amount of status. They have a huge amount of, of cachet. These are the kinds of men that, you know, work at Google. These are the men who design airplanes. These are, you know, these are people who are real kind of movers and shakers. And yet they often don't have very good interpersonal social skills because they find it difficult to read facial expressions. Of course, being able to design elegant code is a much rarer talent than being able to read interpersonal facial expressions. But reading interpersonal facial expressions or reading um, women's signals, for example, is something that is quite necessary in terms of courtship. And so I think that such men, the costs of courtship are very, very high. And that often such men, there's a big disparity between, you know, how successful they are, how talented they are, in day-to-day -day life and how much they're actually contributing to society in a variety of ways and actually their success with women because for women they tend to perceive a man's inability to read their expressions as a lack of interest rather than a lack of a certain kind of intelligence or, or talent and women are often very especially in in the phases of courtship very unlikely to tell somebody look you do xyz and that would make me happy because if you tell somebody exactly what it would it would make you happy, it lowers the barrier to entry in order to get involved sexually or in a relationship. And women are actually, you know, I think making a certain kind of obstacle course um, for men to complete. As all females of all species, you know, other than some strange sex rover species like seahorses, pretty much all females of all species do require males to engage in some kind of costly effort in order to attain sex or in order to attain some kind of relationship. And so I, I said, you know, there's prostitution, there's a variety of other means, uh, pornography by which men achieve some kind of facsimile of sexual satisfaction or sex sexual satisfaction um, without actually having to engage in all of this complicated uh, courtship with women. And I think that sex bots are going to improve that facsimile even more. I mean, right now, I mean, you think about like in the 70s and 80s or 50s and 60s. In the 50s and 60s, men had like black and white postcards of women that they were looking at and masturbating to. Uh, if you look at paintings and, and cave drawings and things like that. And you said you, you see like two circles and a triangle, 
you know, that you're like, oh, it's, it's female, right? Even uh, if you look at um, milking male animals for their semen, it requires very little in terms of how close to a female it has to look like. A male turkey will try to copulate with a red ball that's suspended from the, from the ceiling. And so it, as these facsimiles get better and better, it is going to be less of a cost and less of a sacrifice for men to engage with them instead. And, you know, I, right now it's pretty rare. I think that there are a lot of men who have sex dolls. I mean, not a lot, like some tiny percentage of the population, but certainly there are thousands of these dolls that have been sold. And there's this guy called Dave Cat. He's actually quite a sweet and endearing seeming guy um, who John Danahar, who wrote a sex robots book and other people have, have talked about. Uh, Kate Devlin has also talked about him and he thinks that the future is synthetic girlfriends. I don't think the future is necessarily synthetic girlfriends, but I do think that it is going to be possible with technology to make females that satisfy our human appetites maybe better than the real thing. Okay, maybe we can go back to that point about synthetic girlfriends later in the interview because that's yeah. a very interesting one. But I guess that we are basically focusing on a sample of men here. But I guess that since, I guess, back in the 60s, 70s, the women uh, went uh, in higher numbers to university and to the workforce and the labor market. I guess that for men in general, um, I mean, the panorama in terms of the mating market changed a lot, I guess, because uh, as we know, women tend to be hypergamous in their choosing, in their mate, in their mate choices. They, they prefer ideally a man that is above them in terms of social standing and socioeconomic status and things and earning capacity and things like that. So, um, I mean, we can include that in the picture and also the fact that in the near future it seems that um, many jobs that are more i guess tailored toward men like for example the more physical manual ones uh, are the ones that are more at risk of being replaced and done by uh, some sort of ai systems and robots and machines and things like that so that's another thing that might affect even further, uh, I guess, uh, many men's mating opportunities, right? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, there are going to be changes. Uh, I think hypergamy is a really important concept. Unfortunately, the only people who seem to talk very much about hypergamy are like the red pill and manosphere guys who get it wrong to a great extent. Uh, and if you look at women's romance novels, especially things like Fifty Shades of Grey, who is the protagonist and who is the love interest. The protagonist is this kind of intern girl who's an undergraduate, and the love interest is this millionaire who knows how he came to his, buy his money. It doesn't really matter. But these are the kinds of, of things that women tend to, to fantasize about, and especially things like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and other kinds of romance novels. The, the real ideal is that the woman is really alluring to the man and you know to the exclusion of other people. Uh, Catherine Salmon has talked about the difference between romantotopia and pornotopia. And so the idealized versions of the world from a male and kind of um, typically masculine and a typically uh, feminine kind of perspective. And yes, um, men's manual jobs are going to go away. I remember when I was in graduate school, this is about 10 years ago, I was on a panel uh, for Harlequin romance novels. Harlequin romance novels are the you know, best-selling books on the planet. And they were saying, uh, how can we kind of future-proof our romance novels? How are women's mate choices and ideals uh, for males going to change over the, you know, the next couple decades? And I think I was a very uninteresting panelist because I was like, they're not going to really change very much. It's going to be totally idiosyncratic. And it's, it's very much, women are still going to prefer men high in status. You're going to still have these careers, you know, what are the top 10 careers of men in romance novels that women buy, like sheriff, king, millionaire, businessman, whatever, those kinds of things. Um, the, the, the thing about the manufacturing industry being replaced by robots is that it's going to actually mean that the kinds of people who are on the spectrum, the kinds of people who do 
uh, coding and who design these systems, they are actually going to increase in status even more, but they're still not going to have this necessary feature that many women look for, which is this kind of theory of mind in, in courtship that women often have as a prerequisite for any kind of relationship, casual or serious. Mm-hmm. By the way, you refer to Catherine Salmon, and I have here the book oh, where she talks about yeah. <laughs> slash fiction. So it, it's very interesting. I'm going to interview her next week. So oh, cool. uh, <laughs> okay. So I, I guess that another point we have to talk about here, and that you refer in your article, has to do with the fact that uh, I've had Dr. Martin Daly on the show, and we talked about. Uh, how particularly in more unequal, unequal societies, uh, men that are lower in terms of socioeconomic status, I mean, if they don't have access to women, then they tend to resort to more uh, risky behavior, more violent strategies to try to acquire uh, status more easily and quickly. And that's also because they tend to adopt uh, fast-paced, life history strategies, right? Um, and that's another thing that you talk about in your article that, I mean, would you say that maybe sex robots could play a positive role uh, also in that area? Yes. So it's unclear. And if you think about a system that men are using like a cognitive system to decide how much risk they want to engage in. So a man who has no mate and who has no means with which to acquire a mate, so that is status or resources, he's basically has very, you know, nothing to lose from an evolutionary perspective and everything to gain. And that is a perfect recipe for engaging in risk. That's what people engage in risk when they have very little to lose and a lot to gain because there's an asymmetry in terms of the act, in terms of how much status that they can possibly get because they have no status at all. And so such men are actually very dangerous and that's why there are people who are very concerned about, uh, for example, places where there's an uneven sexual ratio where there's many more men than there are women. Uh, People are concerned about places where there's far more people under 25 than there are older people. So there's many, many more young people, um, places like um, Egypt and Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, because young men are actually very difficult. And that is one reason why people think monogamy has evolved as a cultural strategy is because if each man gets one woman and every man has the possibility of attaining one woman, then that is the minimum uh, with which men will engage in less risky behavior if they have access to at least one woman. Now, since the advent of media that is a facsimile of having a mate, it's really unclear how that plays in. So there is some evidence that uh, pornography, widespread pornography accessibility has actually decreased the rate of sexual assault. Of course, there are people who say that sex is actually about power and not about, I mean, sorry, rape is about sex, but, and uh, is about power and not about sex. I, that's a, that's a, a very big topic for another conversation. But to those people, I would say there is no evidence for your position. So (laughs) I would just say that obviously um, sexual assault is uh, about sex and and not about power. And there has been some evidence that sexual assault rates have decreased in places where pornography is widely available. So the idea here is that if there is some kind of mechanism in the mind that says, should I take the risk of sexually assaulting a woman because I have no potential access to mates? When pornography comes in, it says, no, you do have access to women. Look, you are seeing all these naked women. So it's a cue in the mind of these men that they actually do have sexual access. You know, similar to if you ever put a a fish next to a mirror, it will attack its own reflection. It could be that simply seeing sexual acts or seeing naked women is a cue that you are actually not an evolutionary dead end. And it could be that sex robots are an even better cue that you're not an evolutionary dead end. Certainly, it could be that the kinds of people who are interested in gaining status because they have no sexual access would at least be kept occupied if there were sex robots that were widely available. And there were people that also thought that this was incredibly sexist, but the the data that, I mean, I'm sexist apparently both different ways, but the data that there is actually about this is, is very difficult to explain in another way. It could be that, you know, socially 
we just improved. And that happened to come along at the same time as uh, pornography. And certainly there is violent pornography. There's some small percentage of men who watch it and they become, at least their attitudes as recorded in surveys, become worse towards women. But for the most part, it seems like men who are masturbating uh, to pornography or using a, a sex robot, you could speculate that using a sex robot would have similarly beneficial effects on society. Now, in terms of um, monogamy, uh, now it seems like that you know there's a, the the monogamy model is loosening. People are less likely to get married. People are more likely to have multiple relationships. And I actually think that this means that men uh, have potentially more access to women. So there's this widely touted statistic that something like um, uh, 80% of women are competing for the top 20% of men, that they're actually not interested in the whole distribution of men. And that means that there are a lot of men who are left uh, losers, even in this more sexually free society that we have now. And to that, I would say, it does seem that way from when when you're looking at, you know, um, singles advertisements and online dating, it does seem that way, but I still think that a man who has some kind of niche interest has a much better likelihood of meeting somebody now than you know a few decades ago. Although, again, I think that these these uh, unmated, uh, low status males that do cause a problem in every society. We're not just talking about incels here. Incels are like a specific community, but men who have been incels regardless of whether I'd identify that way, have always been a problem for society throughout history. And they're even a problem in other, you know, non-human species as well. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe this is a good place to bring up again the point about synthetic girlfriends because you refer to the fact basically yeah. that if men, for example, have access to pornography, then they might process that as cues to their... To their having access to sex in some sort of way with yeah. those women so and that's that's the a tricky part here right because i mean the the thing is is that our brain has evolved to process certain types of information as cues of these and that right and i guess that if we are able to trick the brain uh, well enough for it to process, for example, a sex robot or some other source of medium as a real person, then, I mean, at the end of the day, if it's convincing enough, then, I mean, basically, particularly men that, as we've been talking about, are a bit more simplistic, probably will attach to it in a, in a way that for them, I mean, I don't know, perhaps he's good enough. Yeah. So um, I think that if you're talking about men and their desire for attachment, if I talk about, you you know, I've talked about polyamory in other podcasts, which is also the possibility that instead of a man having a full-time girlfriend, he would instead see a woman more casually. So once a week or once every couple of weeks. And the kinds of comments that have been under that have been people saying, no, I want a woman who loves me and who's really attached to me. I want like a full-time partner. I don't want some kind of sex friend or I don't want to, I don't want a sex robot. And these are the kinds of embittered, I would say, comments that, that men make in this respect. And I agree that the ideal is that a man would have a woman who cares deeply for him and who wants his, you know, to the best for his well-being full time. But obviously, that's not possible for everybody. And so, in terms of like a synthetic girlfriend, what Dave Cat has said is that when he's tried to date, what does he call them, biological women? <laughs> he said that <laughs> things don't really work out. I don't know if he's got very niche interests or niche sexual interests. I don't know the guy at all. But I do think that he has said. I, and he actually has two synthetic girlfriends now. He's got two sex dolls at home. And he's got Twitter accounts for them, and they have personalities. And he has, like, a very rich inner life with them. Which, if you think about it, all of us in relationships with real people also have a fantasy relationship with that person. That person is not manifesting the whole relationship. We're manifesting a lot of it on their behalf as well. So I agree that the best thing is for a man to have an invested, loving woman. But... 
given that many men cannot attain that for whatever reason, I do think that the facsimiles, the synthetic options, are going to become better, especially given that some of these men that actually have trouble getting a girlfriend or getting a wife or getting somebody who's heavily invested in them do actually have a lot of money. They are early adopters. They're the kinds of people who like new technology. And they are also men, which means that their standards for a partner are going to be not as high as uh, potentially a, a woman's would be. It, this is an interesting thing about men and women because if you look at just sex, right, men's standards are much lower than women's standards for casual sex. Women's actual physical attractiveness standards can be higher for a casual sex partner than they are for a regular sex partner or for a long-term mate. And so it's unclear if a synthetic girlfriend would, would satisfy somebody in terms of personality. But a synthetic girlfriend can look better than a real woman in most possible ways. And if you look at some of the more misogynistic corners of people talking about sex robots. I think uh, Kate Devlin, who's a, a feminist writer, who's written about sex robots in this way, um, she said that men have said, oh, you know, then I don't have to like have sex with my aging, sagging, wrinkly, mean wife anymore, right? And so, it, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It actually does seem that this is, is playing out uh, both possible ways. Uh, Kate Devlin's argument for the possible problematic nature of these sex robots is that we should have sex robots that do not resemble humans that have some other kind of morphology. I personally think that that's very unlikely. I don't think that you're going to to do that with, with humans or with non-human animals. I think that they have to, the, the, the facsimile has to look like an idealized version of the opposite sex or whatever sex is preferred by that person. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess that we are talking a lot about men that have preferences or tendencies that we would normally consider weird, let's say. And uh, I mean, we focus a lot when we talk about these topics on men, like you said, like incels and men that are, men that are part of the MGTOW movement, men going their own way and things like that. And I mean, when you get into the fringes of that, it gets really nasty. But I guess that uh, they might still, at least the more moderate ones, might still have some points there, to, uh, some important points there to make that ease. So, uh, I mean, human relationships um, are a bit tricky in the sense that, for example, and in our last interview we talked about things like, for example, uh, mate guarding tactics and mate retention tactics. And, uh, and I mean, uh, uh, even though we like to idealize how we establish relationships with other people, it's still the case that it's very easy for people to get hurt by another person in a romantic relationship. And I mean, there are several many different ways for that to occur. For example, one partner might have their mate value decrease for some reason or another, and then he or she is maltreated in some way by their partner. And one of the people there in the relationship might be a little bit more insecure and then that's when he or she will resort to more of uh, mate retention or mate guarding tactics and things like that. And, uh, and I mean, people unfortunately are not always honest even with their romantic partners and so uh, I guess that even though it's a bit sad and uh, I, I was just looking at one of the arguments that Glenn Gare talked about in a Psychology Today blog where he referred to some of the arguments put forth by Marianne Brandon, a clinical psychologist that has some arguments against sex robots and one of them was basically that um, maybe it would take a toll on people's ability to, to work on their intimate relationships and to develop intimacy or something like that. But again, I, I, I guess that you understand when I, what I'm trying to arrive here, even though yeah. it's a bit complicated, right? So, yes, what you're saying is that sex robots could come in and they could you know, break up, what is the, what is the idiom in, in American English? Break up a happy home, right? That they could actually 
uh, undermine actually real healthy good relationships and that they could in some sense also create people who I mean this is the other idea is like I could create people who actually can't connect with other people because one of the only reasons that some men learn very much about how to make conversation or about how women might feel is because they want to have sex with them. And if that's no longer an impetus anymore, then you might actually see men becoming less, less good at this. So what I'll say is that there are many countries in which there's legalized prostitution. And in some of those places, like in uh, New Zealand and Australia, what you see is women who are actually relieved that their husbands and partners can have sex with somebody and they're unlikely to run away with that person. So men tend to be more sexually jealous. That is, men tend to care more about whether their partner had sex with somebody else because whether they had sex with another man is the number one predictor of whether or not they're going to be cuckolded, right? So men don't want that. And women don't want a man to divest from them. So a, a woman doesn't want a man to get another girlfriend or to leave her uh, for somebody else. And in the case of um, strippers and prostitutes and, and women uh, who are sex workers in some way, shape, or form, the likelihood that the one of those women is going to leave or, or draw your male partner away from you is pretty unlikely because th their whole job is to give sexual signals and even signals of intimacy to somebody and they're very unlikely to 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 uh, d cause a divestment of resources other than the payment for the sex or the cam show or the lap dance or whatever the case may be mm -hmm. a sex robot is even less of a threat than a prostitute or a stripper or any other kind of sex worker and so i i could see that rather than it actually breaking up people's relationships that would actually potentially be a better outlet for a man who's in an existing relationship than any of these other avenues that men tend to use. And most men who want to have sex outside of marriage, or I would, maybe it's 50-50, are actually having affairs with other women rather than having sex with a prostitute uh, or having sex with a sex doll. And because women's sex drive towards their regular mate sometimes decreases. There's a book now called Untrue that says that women are more likely to lose interest in their male partner than their male partner is to lose interest in them over time. It could be that a man has a much higher interest in sex for his female partner. And I don't think it's fair for one person in a couple to declare that the couple is now celibate. It's not fair for one person to declare that the other person um, now has to uh, only... Uh, have no sex with anybody else because that person doesn't want to have sex. And so I do think that that happens in a lot of relationships and potentially sex robots uh, could solve that kind of problem. Just as an aside, I just think it's very strange that a woman would cut off sexual access to her husband, not have sex with him anymore, and then think that that's okay. Whereas if you asked her, you know, if I went gluten-free, would you also have to be gluten-free? If I went vegetarian, would you have to be vegetarian? People would think that that was unfair, but for some reason it's it's okay if, if one person cuts off sexual access to another. Uh, and it's become very complicated in this kind of era of Me Too to say that somebody should have sex at any point in time if they don't really feel like it, so. Mm -hmm. uh and what about children? Because th this is one point that Glenn Gare also brings up in his, in his piece for Psychology Today. Uh, I mean, he's a bit worried about uh, birth rates, particularly in more um, industrialized Western countries, uh, falling over time. And he, he, I guess that the argument he puts forth is that sex robots could contribute for them to falling even further uh, uh, with time, I guess. So, but uh, I, I mean, I don't want to focus on that argument specifically, but rather on another one that is related to that. Uh, do we already know in evolutionary psychology how relevant it is for men and women to have children? I mean, for example, uh, are there any relevant sex differences in terms of uh, how meaningful it is for men and women to have children in their lives? 
Yeah, that's, I think that there is a difference there. So men and women, men tend to report that they want to have more children than women, but that makes sense because the cost per child is lower for them than it is uh, for the woman. If you ask men and women who have careers, how much time would you like to spend at work versus how much time would you like to spend with your children and with your family, women report wanting to spend more time with their children and family than they do at work. And this was in a sample of people who were very gifted, quantitatively gifted. So this is controlling for uh, the relevant kind of form of IQ and systematizing that you might be uh, considering. I don't really know about birth rates declining. When you said, what about children? I thought you were going to talk about the other incredibly hot button issue, even though it wasn't on the list of questions that you sent me, which is um, there is this idea now that you should have sex robots for pedophiles. So like that you should have sex robots so so that they don't offend against real uh, children. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of, so like, what about children? That's what I thought you meant. But you meant actually birth rates. I don't think that in the West, mm, I don't know. So, so uh, I mean, half of all births are unintended. People who use birth control incorrectly or simply don't try to use birth control. And, I think for those people, I don't think that sex robots would have a big influence because I doubt that uh, the, the, you know, the the kind of blue collar people who, I don't know how expensive sex robots are going to be in the future, but it seems like um, it's going to be early adopters and very high openness people who are using sex robots. And I don't think that they are the kind of people who accidentally get pregnant anyway. So you're talking about like a stratified society to some extent in terms of who's going to be using sex robots and who isn't. And I think that if you're talking about the kinds of people who have the means to buy sex robots, they're often going to be also the kinds of people who don't have children accidentally. So I don't really know if it would actually have a large influence on birth rates, unless of course, you know, you were airdropping sex dolls or sex robots into areas in order to reduce conflict or something like I can't imagine that it would have uh, very much of an impact. I also think that around the point at which sex robots get better at being very much like a real human person is also going to be convergent with other kinds of technology. So it could be in the future that we have pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and just kind of spinning the lottery wheel of genetics when you have normal intercourse to have a baby, people won't want to do that. People will say, okay, I actually want to pick the best out of 10 embryos or pick the best out of 100 embryos. And hopefully that technology gets cheaper in the future so that any two people can have the best possible offspring. And also the kind of child that will be the easiest for them to love and care for and have a good relationship with. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering, and maybe I wasn't that clear in the second part of my last question, but uh, I mean, people, when they talk about what brings meaning to their lives, they refer a lot of the time to children, right? And, yeah. I, and I guess that was another bit of my question there, that if, if we know, because I don't know if we know that, um, if children are really that meaningful to men and to women. And my question has to do with just with this simple fact that, okay, from an ultimate perspective, let's say, uh, uh, and from an evolutionary perspective, uh, it's important for people to have children. But from a proximate point of view, I mean, people want to have sex because they like it right yeah and and i'm not and it's not even clear to me that during our evolutionary history people really established even a a direct correlation between having sex and having children right so i I mean I, i guess that you understand what i'm trying to arrive at I don't know actually how meaningful it is uh, for, you know, for men versus women to have children. I do know because I have myself considered both sides of the issue quite carefully. I know that, you know, a few decades ago, it did seem that people who never had children, of course, there's a confound there because people who never have children are often people who nobody wanted to have children with. 
And so those are, you know, potentially high neuroticism people or people with other kinds of forms of psychological distress that would potentially make nobody want to partner with them. So I do think that there's a confound there, but it does seem the most recent studies that I saw that child-free people are as happy as people with children. And certainly in the first few years after people have children, when their children are very young, uh, there is pretty good evidence that uh, people are less happy, although they have the sense of, of meaning. And that is something that I've heard, uh, especially I think I was talking to um, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby about having children as well. And they've definitely said that there's this kind of sense of meaning that they have had. And I've talked to people personally about this because... I don't think that a general kind of population level survey is going to necessarily capture, if I'm selfishly trying to think about, you know, how I would feel about having children, is going to necessarily capture how I would feel um, having a family or not having a family. So I don't know is the answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess that when we try to distinguish between meaning and happiness, I mean, it's a bit tricky, right? It's because great, yeah. uh, because if you say that you have meaning in your life, but then you you go through a very hard life and you don't feel happy, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I guess that even for more neurotic people, it, it gets really, really hard to go on, I would say. So, yeah. but, but le uh, let's move on to another topic, because uh, recently I talked with a philosopher on the show, Sven Nyholm, and he brought up a very interesting argument when we were talking about sex robots. That is, there are robots out there that people can use to help autistic children to try to develop uh, their um, social skills, let's say, by mm -hmm. interacting with those robots. So do, do you think that uh, on the more bright side of things, let's say, that we could also uh, develop sex robots um, to try to train, let's say, some men that are, uh, that are more socially inept or something yeah. like that, as a platform for them then to be able to better interact with real women. Yeah, I, I think that there are people who offer like dating coaching like that for men, right? Women who offer that. And certainly I have, I know sex workers who say that they have performed that kind of service for men where they go on dates with them and they actually try to level up their confidence in their psychology in that way. I could imagine, yes, sex robots being used for such a purpose, some kind of program that would increase that kind of interest or th that kind of psychological skill. The only thing that I would say is that even with a, with a sex worker, if you're talking with her and she's on a date with you that you've paid for, it actually might, you can suspend your disbelief that you've paid for her company and you can think, this is a real woman who's enjoying me, my company and laughing at my jokes. I, this is increasing my confidence that I could um, have a relationship with somebody that's not this transactional. Of course, all relationships are transactional, but not like that, right? Yeah. Whereas I think that a sex robot would probably be less, it could be even better and more patient in terms of leveling up somebody's ability to do theory of mind and, and read emotional expressions and things like that. If you could get a sex robot face that was, you know, very emotionally expressive, for example. But I don't think that it would have the same confidence boosting properties that having an interaction with or, or a sexual interaction with a real woman would. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's now move on to a another topic of the conversation because we've been talking, we've been focusing a lot on sex robots, but there are probably other aspects of the possible future of our human relationships that we can also cover here. And one of them, and since you're interested in that, is of course polyamory. So, uh, and and I guess that I'm trying to connect the two things because. Uh, I guess that when it comes to both sex robots and polyamory, that there is a big element of uh, people stigmatizing or socially stigmatizing people that they think about as, for example, uh, acquiring a sex robot or having a relationship with more than one person at the same time. So, 
uh, I guess that that element of social stigmatizing might also play a big role here, not only in how people think about these thing these things for the future, but also uh, in how it might affect people that really resort to them, let's say. Yeah, so I have thought about how if sex robots became very widely distributed and many people had them, that it would be in some sense like polyamory. I don't know if men would love their sex robots. Certainly Dave Cat loves his sex robots. I think that you could develop a certain amount of affection even for an object that is not as intimate, like, like a sock, you can develop a certain amount of affection for any object. But it does seem a little bit like polyamory. And in terms of jealousy management, people say that that's the main obstacle that they have in terms of, of polyamory and also in terms of sex robots. I'm not sure how jealous women would be of sex robots as compared to, for example, sex workers. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like polyamory might be in some sense normalized if people were having sex with sex robots because it would seem less of a a step away from exclusive sexual access or an exclusive kind of sexual uh, relationship. In terms of stigma, it's just very difficult to predict how these things are going to go. So right now, it seems like many young people, like a large minority, there's certainly a greater number of people who are doing what they call consensual non-monogamy, which is an incredibly clunky word. You could just all call it all polyamory if you want to. But there's certainly a greater number of people who are doing some kind of non-monogamy than are LGBT people. And yet LGBT obviously has much more acceptance than polyamory does because the rules for polyamory the way it looks is not actually consistent and people are probably more afraid of any encroachment on their existing relationships than they are about people doing other sexual things, for example. I think that sex robots are now just enough of a future kind of scenario that nobody feels personally threatened by them in the way that people can feel personally threatened by people who are having multiple relationships with with people and people who are saying that monogamy is not the only way to have a healthy relationship. I certainly think that that's more immediately threatening than people talking about sex robots. And as I said, sex robots are very unlikely, you know, sex robots are not going to steal, steal your boyfriend. So that's less harrowing, I think, uh, for people. But all of these different ways of managing relationships and all the ways that people are now writing their own script when it comes to how to have relationships, I think they're all enabling more freedom. My basic point whenever I talk about polyamory or any of this stuff is that if we don't have some kind of grounding in our evolutionary psychology, if we think that we are infinitely malleable and that we can do things any way and be psychologically healthy, then that is a recipe for disaster. I know a lot of people who do polyamory in ways that are really not compatible with fundamental human nature. I know people who try to manage jealousy in ways that I think are very counterproductive. And that's one thing that I think is important is that until we become, you know, we suppress our biology, we have to consider our biology whenever we, or our evolutionary psychology, whenever we decide that we're going to Uh, change cultural norms or consider new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that it's basically the same type of question that we get when we're talking about feminist issues and sex differences, because people, particularly feminists, get really upset, particularly when we're trying to explain sex differences from a biological perspective. But I guess that even when we are trying to idealize how society should be, I guess that it's important to take into account reality, because if you try to go over the limitations of our biological endowments, let's say, then it, it, I mean, it's probable that it won't work, right? Yes, and there are people 
I, I've talked about this in another context, but there is something called relationship anarchy that some people do. And the idea is that you shouldn't really define relationships as such. And I do think that this fundamentally violates what is a, a feminine need for kind of emotional security and a de- defining of relationships and an ability to predict the future in some way, shape or form. And I think that when people decide to do their relationships in these ways, it's kind of like inventing skis that make you go so fast you break your legs. You know, it's it's just it's just things that are incompatible with our limitations as, as human beings. And I think that we have a lot of potential to change ourselves, but it's not infinite. <laughs> so, I mean, before I move on to the last question, uh, are there any other positive aspects of sex robots or that you expect to be positive that we haven't talked about? I don't know. I, I have here also a point about uh, lowering the danger of disease transmission. I don't know if you want okay. to talk about that. Okay. Uh, well, two things I'll say. One thing is that I think that there's a kind of moral panic around sexually transmitted infection. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll just very briefly talk about it because I am planning on doing a video actually mm-hmm. about how rare sexually transmitted infections really are and how difficult they are to transmit. Um, but there's a very good Atlantic piece by Brian Earp called People Are Terrified of Sex. And it talks about basically how people really overestimate the likelihood of transmitting sexually transmitted diseases. And you could say that that's adaptive in some sense, that's fine, but I don't think that it's necessary in order, I think if people had a realistic view of how best to avoid sexually transmitted infections, and most sexually transmitted infections, HIV can be lethal, obviously, it eventually is lethal, but most other sexually transmitted diseases are, are pretty mild and, and pretty curable. So it does seem like that there is a moral panic about them in a way that I think undermines, you know, I, so I'm utilitarian. I, I think about fundamental human utility. And to me, I'm always thinking about the kind of the trade-offs that there are. So Richard Dawkins, when he talks about the trade-offs that there are, he says, you know, it would be great if we all drove around in tanks all the time. That would prevent car accidents. Car accidents are terrible. But we don't do that because we have to get from point A to point B in such a way. And I think that there's a certain amount of risk uh, that we have to accept. And that risk is smaller than, than most people think. So I don't think that sex robots would necessarily you know, decrease the rate of, of um, sexually transmitted infections, or maybe only to the extent that, that people would be having less sex with real people. Uh, one thing that I do think that could be good is that it could just make people better at sex. And I think that uh, sex is, if you think about various pleasures that there are in life, uh, this is this guy called David Nutt who got in trouble for saying that doing MDMA was safer than going horseback riding, right? And I think, I mean, I love to, I love to ride horses. I've ridden horses all my life. I think that most people would find MDMA to be more fun than going horseback riding. It depends on your proclivities. I don't know. But horseback riding, skiing, things like that are way more dangerous. But people don't really um, think about it in that way. And I think sex is, is free. It is um, generally a healthy activity and it usually brings people uh, together. And I think if people became better skilled at having sex because of sex robots with real people who can experience pleasure, I think that that would be a great thing. And we, uh, we talked about, yes, the, the possibility that very lonely uh, sexually inexperienced people would also derive um, some pleasure uh, from this. There has been conversations about whether or not people with disabilities, for example, should uh, get some kind of, you know, I think in Scandinavia, uh, they can use some of their money on sex workers if they want to. And, you know, given that there are people running around who are called foodies, you know, and you eat all kinds of things that all kinds of animals produced, I don't really think that it makes sense to say that deriving sexual pleasure is worse than deriving pleasure from food or physical activity or anything else. I just think that humans in particular have a bit of a hang up about sexual activity mm-hmm. for a variety yeah. of evolutionary reasons, right? Sure, you're alluding to veganism, right? Well, I, yeah, so, so I am alluding to veganism. Like I think that most people, uh, you know, if, if somebody liked to spend all their free time, you know, trying all kinds of new animal products um, to the extent that they were actually undermining their own health, I think that you see a person like that and you wouldn't think that that person is immoral like you would think somebody 
who was lascivious or perverted or was having sex with all kinds of people, even though that person actually might be causing a lot less suffering because no one has to die, <laughs> you know, in order to break that back, right? So I, I do think that there is an objective way to look at these kinds of moral dilemmas and it makes perfect sense as an evolutionary psychologist that people are very, they're too entangled in their evolved emotions to be able to see these things objectively. And that's why I like so many people, you know, like Paul Bloom and um, Peter Singer and other people who think about an evolutionary perspective on these things and try and say, okay, I know what my human lens is saying about this issue. Now it's important for me to try to view it from another more objective perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very interesting argument. I will start using it, the one about uh, when people have sex, no one is dying there. <laughs> to, to talk about veganism, let's say. So, <laughs> but, uh, okay, so let's go to the last question. And now, I, I mean, this might be a very tricky one. It might be a more philosophical question. But, I mean, since we're talking about sex robots, do you also... Uh, worry a little bit about the the robot itself i mean in the future in the future <laughs> if our minds are really just a bunch of algorithms that, that we can discover i mean we could uh, theoretically speaking program them into a robot and it would probably even behave more human like more easily let's say so I mean, do you, do you also worry about that type of thing, about people uh, in the future developing some sort of human-like AI that they then implant in a sex robot and uh, how they would or how they would or could be treated by people? Yeah, I don't really know. I'm not a consciousness person. I find the whole hard problem of consciousness question immensely frustrating and like it never goes anywhere. So I very rarely invest in it. I think Paul Bloom and Sam Harris wrote some kind of piece called Killing Dolores, Hurting Dolores, which is alluding to the character in Westworld. Yeah. And Westworld has certainly been a very evocative way, you know, artistic way of addressing that particular question. So I think that if you had a sex robot, that was able to convince you adequately in a Turing test kind of way that he or she was a thinking, feeling human being, it might be very difficult to then say, no, this, this being is not sentient. And somebody that you might be interested in talking to is a guy called Brian Tomasic, who has a really great blog, sort of like a wiki that he updates all the time. And he has done the only exposition that I know of which talks about do non-player characters in video games have some kind of moral standing? You know, in aggregate, all the non, you know, maybe billions of non-player characters in all these games, when they're being shot and, and killed and, and tortured in various ways, you know, would they have the moral standing of, a, of an ant or a bee or a person? It's really unclear uh, how to quantify any of this. So I would just say that, yeah, I'm agnostic about that and we don't have any objective criteria for sentience at this time and biological creatures we know that we are sentient i think that i think other people are sentient i know that i am right and so we can extrapolate from that that other creatures with central nervous systems or other creatures with basal ganglia or certain amount of nerves and complexity are in fact sentient it's unclear if insects are sentient again uh, brian tomasic has done the best exposition on whether or not insects can subjectively experience their own suffering, which which is sentience. So yeah, I would just say I don't know again, and, and I'm pretty agnostic about that. But it's it seems like a moral problem that we need to grapple with. N not me, but maybe maybe other people <laughs> who work on consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> right, but I mean, at least in principle, uh, evolutionary psychology in the future could have a saying in terms of perhaps. Uh, perhaps better understanding if that creature that we've created and that we are dealing with 
might be sentient or not, right? Because we yeah. are trying to uncover the algorithms that are at the basis of our minds and behavior, right? Yeah, maybe some other evolutionary psychologists. I think it would be quite a, a big moral weight on me to be any kind of deciding factor into how we should treat these kinds sure. of beings or systems. It's unclear to me exactly yeah what what the criteria would be it would be great if there would be some um some kind of criteria but you know a machine might tell you they're sentient of course they would say that so <laughs> <laughs> well we can also believe in solipsism if we uh, if we want and just end the question <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so Dr. Fleischman, it was a real pleasure to have you again on the show. It was a real, a really fun conversation. Uh, would you like again to tell people what are the best places on the internet for them to find your work and maybe plug in a bit of publicity to your upcoming projects or something like that? Yeah, so um, I don't know when this is going to come out, but I have a new blog. It's called Dianaverse. And also you can find me at Sentientist on Twitter. I will be back on there. I, I went on meditation retreat and I never want to get back on Twitter after that, but I will have to. I'm going to be giving a talk uh, on sex differences in New York uh, coming up in a, in a couple weeks. And you can find all my news and everything on my Twitter. And I'm also at dianafleischman.com. Okay, great. I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. So people go there and check it out. It's very interesting. And also, by the way, the link to your article on sex robots and can evolve us, right? So, and again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really fun. Thank you. I had fun. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, you also have the alternatives of Subscribestar or PayPal. And please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Kondriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Illy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart, and my three producers, Cesar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.